0: Hi everybody! Welcome to the Vau Most Awesome Founder Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. I'm your host Tris Fans, and as always, it's a great pleasure to have Garrett McGowan as my co-host today. Today, we welcome to the podcast Vau alumnus Muhammad Chabib. Muhammad successfully launched and led nine ventures raising over 200 million and generating over 1 billion in sales with activities across different industries and regions. Mohamed, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, really. So, Mohamed, <laughs> so, um, as you might know, we always start the podcast in a similar way, namely we just want to give kind of our guests the freedom to briefly talk about their personal background, their personal history. So I would say the, the floor is yours to say something about where you're coming from, what you have experienced.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things that define my personality, I would say, in my, uh, in my career. Number one is uh, I was born in Bonn, Bonn, Germany, which used to be the capital. And it used to be a very nice capital because it was quiet. It was very humble. Um, the opposite of what Berlin is today, very conservative. Um, and very protected as an environment. It was after World War II, I'm not that old, but after World War II, they made sure that Germany becomes a humble um, and, uh, and, and nice place. That's number one. Number two is my parents were both from Syria. Um, came to Germany both at the age of between 16 and 18. Um, very intellectual family, academic um, uh, background. Um, but when you come as a foreigner to Germany, and a Muslim foreigner at that time, I'm talking 60s and 70s, my mom was the first one that was covered. So you had to defend yourself or explain yourself at least all the time. That's number one. Number two, uh, my my father and mother didn't come with wealth. So they had to build stuff. So for me, I consider my dad, for example, one of the biggest entrepreneurs I've ever seen in my life, because not only did they build income for family, no, they built actually a community for people like them that came to Germany that were not, not the typical guest workers for factories, but like. An intellectual cloud that came from Arabic countries, and they built infrastructure for them. So that's something that really influenced me. And then school in uh, in Bonn, graduated, went to Vihau, not knowing what I'm getting myself into, to be honest. I just applied because I read somewhere <laughs> it's an elite university. And I was like, oh, yeah, let me apply. <laughs> um, and somehow I got taken in, and then I figured, okay, how do I pay for it? Um, And I literally, for four years, worked 100% of my time on the side in order to fund it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I graduated there. And I think the biggest thing I got from there was the ability to work with the most diverse people under pressure on certain things. I don't honestly, I shouldn't say that on a a podcast, but um, (laughs) theory is not really what I took away. Frankly, because whatever you need today, you know how to get it. Um, But I took away this this spirit, I think, and I think it it really defines me. And then my career is very simple. I started um, with startups in Germany in the internet bubble one. Um, Then in 2003, I did a project that took me to Dubai for the first time to a trade show, Jitex, the IT trade show. And I didn't believe this was an Arabic country because I knew Cairo and Amman and Riyadh and Jeddah back then. And I was like, okay, this doesn't look Arabic saw the infrastructure, I met a guy from McKinsey who was at the VHU before me, two years above. And he's like, hey, we need people. And A, McKinsey was not my thing because I was like, okay, no, my personality doesn't really fit that culture. Um, (laughs) um, But then I learned very quickly that McKinsey outside of Germany is not McKinsey inside of Germany because I spent a day at the office in the Middle East and somehow seven interviews later, I got a job. Probably that was uh, after the VHU joining my second best decision of my life. Because at the age of 30, I joined McKinsey. I was an arrogant prick, to put it in plain words. Um, a startup mm-hmm. guy who was always the superhero in every room, the fastest, strongest, loudest. But at the end of the day, I didn't know anything, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, get, I got to McKinsey where there were many, many people that are smarter than me, and I had to learn. And the first feedback I got from a senior guy was, uh, hey, stop this crap or we we'll kick you out. And I needed that, I no. think, to develop into what I am today. So I did McKinsey for 60 years, roughly. Uh, then left to join the startup uh, space in Dubai when it still did not exist.
2: Um, point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Quick, I, I'm curious about this. You know, I've met a lot of folks that went consulting to startup, start even startup to consulting. Um, you know, you were at McKinsey pre-McKinsey Leap days where they were jumping into actually trying to build ventures themselves. Share a little bit about Going from the pace and the way of thinking of startups to now, I'm assuming you were in the more traditional consulting side, helping corporates with digitization and things of that sort. How did that uh, shape your your mindset and how did you kind of have to adapt in the way you kind of uh, envision
1: business taking place? Yeah. Um, in one word, it was a super challenging thing for me to do. That's number one. Uh, number two, it was quite enlightening. Why? Because you learn methodology that is top-down methodology, right? And you learn big thinking, right? Uh, yesterday was a coaching session or mentoring session for the uh, folks where probably the, the biggest feedback I would give constantly to each of the teams was think bigger. Don't think like this. You want to build something, think global, right? Um, don't build the small, tiny piece. And, and this is something that you learn in McKinsey and you learn how to communicate it. And I needed that, right? However, when I joined, the most challenging thing is I joined, the first project that I got was HR Reorg in a oil company somewhere in the Middle East. Blah. HR Reorg Theory, create 150 slides and share them with someone you don't. Blah. Right? Now, my, my advantage that I had is that I came as an experienced hire who had worked. My first job was SAP. And then I did startups, so I knew a corporate from inside, and SAP was a corporate already back then. Um, and then I did startups, so I was someone who, and, and I'm very opinionated. That's what I learned from my parents. Like, and the first time someone asked me something in McKinsey, I said no. Like the first time they say, "Okay, twelve hours are over. Let's start our second shift," I said no. So I was I was known for the guy who says no to most of the things. Right? Why? Because frankly, if I'm not convinced that I had to do something, I don't do it. Right? Mm-hmm. And when you tell me that our job is to help our clients focus on the right things, then for God's sake, focus on the right things. Don't give me 10 things to do. Give me three things to do that are really impactful. Right? And that was my mentality in McKinsey. Um, it was tough in the beginning because I didn't know how to communicate that in an effective manner. But then as you grow and as you get your trainings on how to deal with different personality structures. You learn that this partner needs this, this senior partner needs that. And then um, the first thing I learned was that the most important buddy is your direct client because he will defend you. So my client used to call the partner and say, stop burning my tea. Right? But I got mm-hmm. out of office at 637. So I had an average of below 60 hours in McKinsey a week, um, yet had a lot of impact on the client side, which is what drove me. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of type of work, it's not this, let's get this done, get this done. So what I've done then to to really, and it's possible within McKinsey. Um, and, and I think the reputation is much worse than reality is if you stand up for what you believe in. And most people are victims, but if you really stand up for what you believe in, um, what you say is, you know what? This is the type of project that I want to do. I, for example, never want to do a strategy project three months, burn yourself and die. What I've done mm-hmm. is one and a half years on average on each project big transformation Mm. projects where I had to hold hands of clients and show them how to do things and get things done and the average slide deck that I produced per study was 25 slides Um, because I refused to do more because honestly my client didn't want more he's like man I'm sick and tired of seeing your slides right Um, so challenging but if you shape it the way you want and it took me about a year to understand that within McKinsey but then it was a blast and I learned so much
2: and how long did you did you last in that world before you had to pull the parachute cord?
1: 2004 till 2010. And in between, I was seconded at a client organization. So I did a one and a half year study and then the client told me, why don't you continue? And so I stayed there then inside the, the business for almost two years. Um, and then returned. And then one day, I woke up after one of the stressful studies, actually, where I had to turn around a client situation that was broken. So six weeks, literally, Every day, 18 hours, seven days a week for six weeks. On the last day of the presentation of the Steerco, I drove back home. And the next morning, I woke up with four slip discs. And okay. I, I had like, to reach my phone, which was two meters away. I had to crawl for about three hours to reach it, to call for help. And that's the moment where I mentally checked out. It was the first time in my life where I couldn't go to work because I was sick. It's like, okay, I really can't go. Like, I can't walk. I um, went to the doctor uh, who told me like three months out. After six weeks, obviously, I returned to McKinsey. Did a project where I had to fly out at 3 a.m., land at 8 a.m., have my first client meeting at 9 a.m. Uh, and in a, in a crappy hotel bed. So I woke up four weeks later for a steer call in Lebanon. And I couldn't feel certain parts of my body. And... You know, I did this steer meeting with the chairman because I'm a good McKinsey. Um, and then after this circle literally, I looked at the senior partner, I'm like, this was my last meeting in the firm. And then I left. Mm-hmm. And,
0: uh, but, But Mohamed, if I can ask, because yeah. you're now clearly explaining a very clear reason why you said, okay, I need to change something, but then you decide to go into venturing mm-hmm. in the middle yeah. East, which is not definitely at that point in time, I think would not be the most straightforward region to do it. Yeah. That doesn't sound like a very kind of (laughs) rational decision in terms of reducing your stress levels. It almost feels like you're going to the next level in terms of stress. Can you explain a bit about what was the kind of thought process to move from McKinsey to that kind of trajectory? Of course. Um, First of all,
1: I never planned my career, ever. Everything that I've done in my, literally every single thing I've done in my life, apart from my first job, was a coincidence and i i i believe firmly in destiny i believe that whatever i'm doing today is what god wants for me you can call it god or whatever you please but i call it some higher power has foreseen this life for me um that's number one number two i don't believe that the stress level of mckinsey is what brought me my four slip discs or the stress level of work in general. I think what, what happened is that I was a super sporty guy doing three hours every day and at one point I stopped and mm-hmm. I think when okay. you do that and all your muscles move downhill it yeah that's it right I never mm-hmm. I never feel stress at work work for me is a very simple function of you have a lot of tasks and you need to see through these tasks and pick the ones that are really important I don't let anyone stress mm-hmm. me Right. And I smile Mm -hmm. all the time and I laugh all the time and I have fun at work. Right. Because I believe that Mm -hmm. without fun, you can't perform. Right. So I I don't feel the stress level the way I need to do that. I don't understand people who feel it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time understanding that. So I don't think that's the ultimate uh, Mm -hmm. source of my pain back then. Um, But since childhood, if you remember, I don't know, you're not my age. So I I don't think you remember, but um, um, the first Iraq war in 1990, is when the entire media in Europe, and specifically in Germany, turned from Russia is bad, and this not Russia, the Soviet Union is the enemy and it's bad, all Mm -hmm. Hollywood movies would depict Soviets as animals, Mm to Arabs and Muslims are bad, right? And that's something that really killed me throughout my entire adolescence, late adolescence, my siblings, my family, everyone in my cloud, although I speak German better than any German and whatever, right? But at the end of it, it fancy yeah. you because you always have to justify where you're from. Oh, I'm Syrian and I'm Muslim and then everyone looks at you in a weird way, right? And mm-hmm. I looked at the Middle East in a very critical way. I'm like, it's full of dictators. There's nothing positive coming out of the Middle East that serves mankind and the world. It used to be different 200 years ago. Now we're in trouble. Like nothing positive comes out. Every time I, uh, like whatever, Uh, In Germany, we say one bag of rice drops in China, and we say Islamists, terrorists have been the cause, right? Um, So there was always this, and it it lasts until now. Until now, it's the same thing with the current uh, things happening. So What I wanted is, I believe firmly that in order to take the Middle East out of this crap, And out of this image, we need to build success stories in the Middle East by Middle Easterners and take them out of the Middle East to the rest of the world. That was something I had Mm -hmm. so many conversations with my father back then about exactly this. He's like, you got potential. You have to put it at service of these people, of your people. And and I don't consider myself Syrian because I've never been in Syria. Um, Obviously, I am Syrian, but I consider myself an Arab, right? And in, in broader sense, a Muslim Arab. Um, so I feel that I have to serve this region and I had this profound feeling since before even I joined Beha'u, before I graduated from school. So when I had the opportunity, well, when I when I had the opportunity to join McKinsey there, there's two thoughts that I had. Number one is I need to learn and I need an organization that is high performing that can teach me stuff because I'm an arrogant prick. I only listen to people that are smarter than me. I right, beg them. Um, and the second component that I had is the best way for me to enter the Middle East is through a firm like McKinsey because the network I will build at the highest levels on day one is not comparable to anything else that you would be, be doing. Right. So this is why I joined McKinsey. And, and then within McKinsey, I transferred back to Germany because I wanted to prove to myself that I can survive the German McKinsey as well. And I did. Um, but then I was back in Germany and got this phone call. It was actually in Lebanon. I got this phone call, this Skype call back then by one of the investors in the first startup that I then, uh, took on. And uh, it was basically, if you know, uh, obviously, you know, Klaus Hommel and Oliver Jung back then. Um, and they're like, look, we have this startup. It's a VHU founder. He's 10 years younger than you, Saigen Yelchen. Um Great guy. Um, we have faced some challenges in the business. And we need a little bit more gray hair for operational expertise. I'm like, okay, screw your gray hair thing. But sounds interesting. <laughs> um, and literally, I had... And and as I said, it's a coincidence. They like, they looked on LinkedIn, Oliver Jung told me Mm. on LinkedIn, he searched for VHU, McKinsey, Dubai, Arabic speaker. And I was the only one.
2: (laughs) You may still be the only one. (laughs) No, no, no. Now, now there's a lot more, but um, honestly,
1: back then I had this conversation. I don't, I didn't know what I'm getting myself into. They're like, okay, you will take over from Saigon as CEO and run the business. And um, I'm like, okay, but I want him to remain as my partner because he owns the business, he runs the business, he knows this stuff. Um, I need someone that that can basically uh, teach me certain things that I have no clue about. And I want a partner. I want a real partner. And we did it together at one point, sold it then. Um, and that was basically how I dived back into into the Middle Eastern scene. And then you all know Roman Kirsch. She did this fat.com clone and sold it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. once I sold this fashion business first, Klaus and I discussed that, why don't I clone this stupid business model in the Middle East very quickly and we do the same thing. <laughs> so my motivation was back then, um, quick startup, quick exit, um, which is stupid. Okay. In hindsight, I would say the most stupid idea i ever had. Um, so I pivoted also after eight months. But th- this is how I got back into this. It was a coincidence. I appeared on a search list. Someone called me and we clicked. That's it. Mm-hmm.
2: So how much was you know the early days in UAE of startup life how much did it mimic the startup scene in Germany where it was copycat clone copycat clone look look at what the US is doing and do the same thing for this region would would you say that similar pattern existed there when you were in early in early days it's, it's quite different because what you had in Europe back then was
1: a plethora of people that entered the market coming out of universities. You know, you had back then you had VHU, you had Apps, yeah. you had high. Right, these were the universities producing the startup farmers, Right, yeah. back then the McKinsey consultant would stay in McKinsey, um, yeah. and uh, but these these guys like coming out of school, they would try something immediately. Right, the moment they say I'm from the same business school as Oliver Zumbra, they would get funding at least the initial funding yeah. in the beginning. Right? Um, right, so in the Middle East. I like when I was there as a founder, I was probably one of the top five founders or one of the only founders back then, right? There was nothing, Mm -hmm. nothing. There was maktoub.com, which got sold to Yahoo, which was in essence, an Arabic news and email portal. That was the biggest, the the first big exit. The second thing was souk.com, which is from the same group Mm -hmm. of companies which was then sold to Amazon. And the third thing was sukkar.com the business that Saigon and I ran that we sold to Sucre.com and then to Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. that was it. And then Oli came and, uh, so Oli and I were the same year, but then like two guys came that I knew from Germany and they're like, look, we got the, we met Oli, you know him. Um, and he said, <laughs> if we wanted to run rocket internet on his behalf in the Middle East, and he said mm-hmm. other things that they didn't like, but, um, they saw a potential. They're like, what do you recommend? Shall we work with him or not? And, uh, I'm not going to disclose what I answered, but, um, at the end of the day, (laughs) at the end of the day, they started this Zalando clone in the middle Mm -hmm. East, which is namshi.com. That was the next one. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, to be fair until today, I would say that was the first really functional business model that was created. Not the one that I had with this flash sale Mm -hmm. thing, not the one that soup.com had back then because they were just flat, flat, flat and burning cash left, right and center. And the maktoub.com story was basically um, great that Yahoo was there to purchase me. Um, Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, obviously five years later, there was no room for this type of business model with the the big Mm -hmm. boys coming in. Um, And then it started, right? There was Namshi and then there was a second and a third guy and then things came. But what did not mature was two things in the Middle East. Number one, And Dubai was the only place in the Middle East, pretty much where you can do that. What did not develop quickly enough, in my perspective, is the founder material was not high quality. Why? -hmm. Because you don't have universities producing top talents there. There's not one single university Mm -hmm. that ranks globally. And I keep saying that to the leaders down there. It's like, guys, Mm -hmm. let us build a ranking university. Let us really make sure that we build something that produces scientific papers that produces top talents that, 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 but, um, we're still not there. There's NYU now in Abu Dhabi, which probably is world-class, but Mm -hmm. that's it. I don't know if anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, so if the founder material was bad, the second thing is the VC material was even worse. There were three, four VCs that call themselves VCs, but, um, you know, you would talk to them like, ah, you know, um get me a european investor to lead and then i go along like okay Mm -hmm. why do you call yourself risk capital then like if Mm -hmm. i had a european vc would i even talk to you um and these kind of discussions were quite nice um um, Mm -hmm. because they didn't they didn't learn how to be a vc they just had cash Mm that they needed to invest right um and maybe the third thing is in terms of resources people that you would hire for your startups also Mm -hmm. There was not a maturity level of getting good people. You had a lot of influx from India and Pakistan of tech resources, mm-hmm. but frankly, ninety uh, percent of the people I hired back then I would never have hired mm-hmm. in a startup in Germany. Mm-hmm. okay, okay. so there was a different like- type of work um that you had to do sorry. Yeah. Like-
2: I want to ask you about one other variable of, of ecosystems that I think is particularly interesting in, in the Middle East, and it's it's networks and relationships. So mm-hmm. I, the first company I built, I had a Chinese business partner, and we often talked about this concept of Guangxi, which is embedded in Chinese culture of this is, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, you're kind of embedded in this hierarchy Um, I've never done business in the Middle East, but I've dealt with a lot of Middle Eastern investors and I have a number of friends that have, you know, built companies there. And oftentimes there are, you know, intricate and complex relationships with the ultra wealthy, the royal families, um, social and cultural dynamics that uh, require, I guess, complex navigation can you talk a little bit about building a company there I mean technically you are an auslander there as well you know even though maybe you are Arabic speaking you certainly weren't an, an emirati for example did you often have to deal with the the leadership and the centers of power and and navigate that and was that were they at that stage really participating in the startup world already or did they just see this as some fly-by-the-night thing and let's focus on our resources, which are really making us money.
1: Hmm. I think you need to differentiate here between the different places in the Middle East. Dubai is special yeah. because Dubai yeah. doesn't have money, doesn't have oil money, yeah. right? Right. Abu Dhabi has a lot of oil money. Abu Dhabi yeah. is in charge of nation building. Dubai is in charge of Dubai building, um, Right. Then you have Saudi, it's a completely different beast mm-hmm. that is transforming yeah. now at a, at a speed that I have never witnessed before in my entire life. Yeah, um, not in China, mm-hmm. n- nowhere on this planet, the, the way they're in, yeah. They decided three years ago to invest their own money into their own. And that's yeah. the first time they've done it. And trust me, they have a lot of money. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. the, the infrastructure leaps, they're taking, it's really quantum leaps they're taking on a monthly basis. It's crazy. And yeah. if 80% of what they do is wrong, will pay off so much um, that it will take it to to a different level. Now, let me go back to Dubai. Dubai's philosophy is our role as the CEO of Dubai, that that Sheikh Mohammed sees himself, as the CEO Mm -hmm. of Dubai, I need to create a framework that allows people to live in a nice way, in a happy way, to have business, run business in a nice way without me Stopping them from doing their business and growing and attracting more business by being successful here. So the philosophy is the more attraction I have to people that are successful here, the more people will come. Right. So leave them alone. Right. Now, there is also it's very difficult to go to someone that, you know, and say, I want you to get me a meeting with this someone that, you know, because I want him to buy my product. You, you you very rarely get these types of intros or this type of intros because people are very careful to abuse their positions mm-hmm. much more than anywhere else. However, I had the privilege of within my McKinsey time, I took a six month break and joined the World Trade Center in Dubai, the the mm-hmm. uh, the company for the that runs the trade shows, the mm-hmm. exhibition company, and there I worked alongside a couple of locals and I got behind. The, I, I got to look behind the curtains and met a couple of people that became close friends, even um, that helped me understand and navigate through the relationship, the jungle um, in the country, in the entire country. Right, so they know everyone, but I would never ask them for favors because not because not because I uh, I don't need favors or I, I simply don't want to put them in a position. Where they feel awkward, they feel uncomfortable, they would owe someone something. No, I can, I can reach any person that I want in a normal way, like in Germany. You pick up the phone and call, <laughs> and then you can reach people. So this Habibi culture and this vitamin C culture and, and, and relationship kind of thing, um, I would say is not really important in the startup world in Dubai. What is important though is to think long term about relationships. Right? So I immerse myself into shaping discussions about the industry, shaping in, uh, discussions about VC startups, founders. I, I try to mentor as much as I can in different settings, also government settings. I'd like to participate as a jury member for certain competitions. Even though sometimes I think, okay, that's not what I would do in Germany because you know of the quality gaps, et etc. But I think you have to develop a market, and that's the mindset you need to adopt when you go down there. You go to develop a a structure that has been developing over 40 years in the valley and over 30 Mm -hmm. years in Europe, right? And I think this is the mentality you need to adopt. And I have a heart that is Arabic. So for me, it's easier probably to eat some of the stuff than for someone coming from Germany with the Berlin arrogance, as I call it, and go down there and like, going to conquer the world now. Right, that's that's different. Yeah. Now this is Dubai. Abu Dhabi is different. It's not this big startup hub. They're trying very hard with all their monetary mightiness to create a hub, and God knows what. Yeah. But frankly, people register companies and work out of Dubai. I think it's been yeah. changing in the last twelve to twenty-four months a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But this was at least in my first phase of entrepreneurship, people would stay in Dubai because the resources are there. People who move mm-hmm. from abroad to UAE move to Dubai. Now Saudi is a completely different thing. First of all, yeah. The relationships there matter much more than anywhere else. Much, much, much more, right? If you think about Saudi and the spent in Saudi, probably the most relevant projects in Saudi are run by PIF, which means they're run by the royal court, right? Yep. If you're not in a relationship somehow with senior people in PIF, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to get to the big projects, big impact, big support, etc. Mm-hmm. You can still do your thing, right? And you have a degree of freedom that is okay. But if you really want to get through the doors of certain banks, certain insurances, certain partners, it's helpful to know the right people there more than anywhere else. Now, when I want to meet people, I have a couple of friends that work there in these organizations and some of these big organizations. The way they do it is they organize dinners with the CEO of here, mm-hmm. with like two three Saudis, two three expats, all CEO and general manager level or director general level. Hey, by the way, there's Muhammad. Muhammad does the following. Da, da, da. Hi, this is Jeff. He does the following. This is Ahmad. He does the following. Then you have a two, three hour dinner. You exchange cars, And at one point, you connect and you're like, hey, come on, let's grab coffee alone without the group and discuss how we can benefit each other. And then this builds over time. You have, I always say you have to eat rice with your hand for like three, four, five, six months with a group of people mm-hmm. before, before you really get to in-depth relationships and in-depth conversations. Right? It's It's quite different. That's, that's not how
0: it's done in Dubai. Because Muhammad, so it's, it's very clear. You have a very good understanding about the kind of investor scene in the Middle East. Now today you're actually back in Berlin. So, you as kind of being an outsider how do you actually look at the current kind of vc climate in germany and in Berlin? <laughs> good question <laughs> <I'm> laughing already <laughs> oh, i know what's coming
2: now. <laughs> um,
1: during my tenure in dubai or uh, during my time in outside of germany by the way i've been 20 years outside of germany right um, Yeah. And my wife keeps asking me, why the hell did I return to Germany with that? (laughs) It's a different story, and specifically to Berlin. Now, I think the main difference between people I interacted with in the last 20 years and people I see now, especially in the funding scene, is... um, And in the Middle East, I talked a lot to to US-based investors that came to the Middle East. These guys tried to convince you to take money from them. If you're a solid entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, solid entrepreneur, good business model, traction, no traction, doesn't matter. If you have what it takes to become solid one day, they're like, hey, if you work with us, we have doom, doom,
2: doom, 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 doom.
1: Unlike Mm -hmm. the other VCs, we offer you doom, doom, doom. (laughs) I was like, oh, gosh. And then Mm -hmm. you come here and you have a guy that studied with you at Vihau, That was your colleague in McKinsey. You had probably 30 lunches with him. You reach out to him on LinkedIn. You send him an email to his private email. You send him a WhatsApp message and you send him an email to his VC email address. He goes mm-hmm. to you. And then you run into him at one of these events, right? Um, oh, how are you, man? Long time. I'm like, yeah, long time. What's wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they avoid you because why mm-hmm. the hell are you asking me why I did not respond to you? I was impolite, right? I'm basically, I'm basically a dickhead and you're telling me that you're not even telling me, you're just making me feel like one without telling me even just by looking at me, I remembered how, what, what an idiot I was and then they avoid you. And I think this is probably the main narrative that I would say about this scene, um, at least from what I have experienced. And I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs um, that tell me the same, like you have someone that is excited and then they stop talking to you all of a sudden without yeah. giving you
2: any reason. Yeah, I, I like how Brad Feld. Do you know who he is? He founded yeah. TechStars. Yeah, of course, his his model of this is you know startup ecosystems have leaders and feeders, right? And in the optimal scenario, it's the founders are the leaders, and the rest yes. of the ecosystem is there to support the founders. I think we see a little bit of a flip in you know, I wouldn't say unsophisticated, but maybe uh, ecosystems that still need a couple iterations of involvement, of evolving. And I would put Berlin and Germany in that category a little bit where the capital sees themselves as the leaders and the entrepreneurs are a product, right? And they're at the center. They're the center of gravity. And I think until that switches, they're going to be driving the narrative and they're going to be driving the the trajectory of this. And frankly, it's, I think it's hampering German innovation. And it's one of the reasons we've still had multiple iterations of, you know, copycat type models. And we're only just starting to see the horizon three innovation because frankly, a lot of that foreign capital in the early stages is coming in here. Yes. And yesterday
1: I had a meeting with a founder and he was like, man, I'm defining my product. I'm working on my product and like some of these, uh, VCs, I'm not even going to talk to them. I'm going to raise funding from abroad because frankly, I don't want these control freak German VCs. Mm-hmm. It's literally the same thing that he used.
2: <laughs> yeah. and, and funny enough, I haven't
1: been here for 20 years, but I knew exactly what he meant. I knew exactly what he meant, you know, and, and that's sad. It, can you explain a bit what, what it means? What does it mean? Yeah, give, this, give me this reporting structure. Give me that uh, mm-hmm. weekly report. We need to have bi-weekly calls um, for one and a half hours where you go through the following structure. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I have a KPI format I want you to use and only that. So basically, mm-hmm. your, your your degree of freedom as a founder, and this is why you became a founder, because you want to shape, is sucked out of you. It's sucked out of you. The moment you get capital from them, they own you. Mm-hmm. And they own you as a person and, and as a personality. And that's difficult because it it kills creativity and kills this innovation. Um, and that's sad because there is so much power in the German population and the population that lives in Germany. I think that's how we need to to say it now because there's, there's few, fewer and fewer now that are German actually native. Yeah.
2: You know, I, I would even say, it, and first of all, I, I want to caveat, and I see Dries getting nervous, that there are some really great investors out there, and some of them are really yes. good friends of mine, too. But I would say I even see this happening before a deal is made in the due diligence, right? Some of the questions my portfolio startups get asked by VCs are totally inappropriate for the stage that they're in. And there's, you know, I think in, in other parts of the world, people understand this is a learning phase, right? This is we're investing in a team we're investing in their trajectory and we understand that everything's going to change. And I see pre-seed deals that are asking for data rooms with ridiculous information in there, you know? So I I think there's this very kind of, you know, it's the, you know, maybe it's a stereotype, but it's the very disciplined structured German mindset of we need to have columns and rows for all of these different things and we're inherently risk averse. So if you don't easily fit in those columns and rows, we don't know how to deal with it. So we're just going to walk away. From it. And yeah, I, that was, is I a, was
1: about to you know, say, that's exactly the reason yeah. it's not. there is a couple of really good people. Like I agree, actually, yeah. if Dries yeah. looks this way, there is a couple of people <laughs> that are super nice that I would love to have on my cap table if I had a, a new mm-hmm. business. Um, yeah. but I think the German mindset per se is is what controls the behavior here? Exactly as you said, there is a certain model. If I have never seen it before, I shy away from investing. Why? Because I can't sell it to my LPs myself. Right? Yeah. I don't know how to sell it to my uh, LPs. If they ask me one question, I need to be prepared. So give me this data room. Yeah, you are pre seed, but I need to see traction. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know?
2: Yeah. 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 And unfortunately, I, I hate to say it, but I think the problem with that is the lack of diversity, right? And I think we can all we can all take a little bit of blame for that because a lot of that lack of diversity is coming from the place that, you know, we support and we were educated or we work at. Right. So, I mean, so much of it funnels out of the same place and the same network of people. So you have that same mindset, which is far different than, yes, that happened in Silicon Valley, but so quickly, you know, venture capital and entrepreneurship decentralized across the U S so you have really and of course, the massive immigrant growth of of ventures in, in the U.S. drove that as well. So, you know, that's why I'm a big proponent of like, we need to think of more, you know, underrepresented groups, uh, you know, mm. uh, immigrants and whatnot, and try to bring, at least create more opportunities for people in that scene. Because I think that's Germany's big risk, right? Is if it stays... Well, and, and Maybe, yeah. Go
0: ahead. maybe to, to touch on that topic, because I think this is a very interesting... An interesting, but also an important one, and I think actually even policymakers are paying attention to it today. Namely, that of course also in Germany have, we have quite some immigration, but even if you look at kind of statistics and you compare, for instance, the U.S., how many immigrants found companies, and you compare that with Germany. The, the numbers in Germany are extremely low. So the, the kind of share of immigrants in successful startups, and VC backed startups, is extremely low. Whereas we actually know from research that typically having an immigration background should should kind of be a, a stimulus of becoming a, a successful entrepreneur. So so Mohammed, do you have do you have an explanation for that? Yeah. Also given your own background, because of course you're you're kind of that person yourself. Um, although you were you grew up in, in, in Bonn. You had this kind of background of coming from an immigrant family. So, why does it seem to be so difficult for immigrants in Germany to really build a successful startup career? Do you have any explanations for that? It's not popular opinion if I mention that now. But I think. <laughs> no, but we, don't, we
1: are not here to <laughs> have a <any laughs> popular opinion. I know, that's what I like. Um, I think there is an intrinsic. And it's a big word, and I'm using it because I don't have any better word. There's, I think it's somewhere between fear and racism. And I think it's interrelated, mm-hmm. That is it's intrinsic in the German society. We fear what is strange to us, and we're fed by media. And these days, we're fed even more and more and more, right? Um, now, this fear doesn't exist in the U.S., and in, in at least the educated levels. Why? Because it's always been like that. The U.S. is a melting pot of different cultures from day one right? Um, mm. has always been, I think the UK also is different, different um, because the culture is also, much, especially when you, when you go London, um, that's the culture where you see all different kinds of people, especially subcontinent people. They've been part of society for ages, right? Mm. Um, here in Germany, if you called Mohammed, I must admit people need to look behind the curtain Who do you stand for? What do you stand for? Blah, 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 blah. And that's Mm -hmm. difficult, right? And there's certain, I mean, I come from two networks, like we have McKinsey Network, and the third network is my Arabic Muslim network. I can't Mm -hmm. combine all of them at the same time because they're hostile Uh, to each other um, somehow. mm -hmm. And and, and that's Mm -hmm. tough. Um, Now, 90% of the people that I know adopt a victimized role because they're mm-hmm. beaten by media day and night still until they, I mean, look at media today, today itself. You're beaten on behalf of something that happens somewhere in the world all day long, all day long. Mm-hmm. Now, when you have that, all the entrepreneurial energy gets occupied with, okay, how do I get through this meeting? Pretending to be a real European or a real German, right? Mm-hmm. right? To mm-hmm. an extent where I would run around and say, my name is Mohammed. Oh no, my name is Muhammad. That's what you usually call him. But it's easier, so I make it easier for people to pronounce my name, which I shouldn't be doing, right? You don't mm-hmm. tell me my name is Helmut. You say my name is Helmut, right? When you're German, and and I think there's a mindset issue here that makes it really difficult for people that um, that that are not native native German mm-hmm. um, that are more from the eastern side of this mm-hmm. world, southeastern mm-hmm. side of this world. Mm-hmm. It's easier. When you're European, Western European, Northern European is probably not as bad. Um, but yeah, the other thing makes it really challenging, I must admit.
2: Let's, uh, let's flip the script on this topic because I think it's, a, it's an interesting one because, you know, I, I, I've never worked in the regions that you have, but I spent all of 2007 working in Palestine. And certainly I, was, uh, um, I stood out like a sore thumb in that place as being very different, although an amazing experience. Now, I'm seeing so many uh, venture capital partners, um, growth startups that are looking to the Middle East for capital, but they're based in Europe. Um, actually, I was working with a VC fund this year that was, you know, getting meetings actually with PIF. And they were told their $100 million fund was too small and they're not interested in dealing with them, whether that was the truth or not. Point being, what I'm really interested in, I, 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 that's what I figured. Yeah, but. What, the, the point being is now Europeans are seeing that part of the world as an opportunity region. How, how do you see that playing out? Do you agree that if you are a, a German venture capitalist or a German entrepreneur, that that is a, a place to access resources? Or do you think those same differences that uh, you know, a Middle Easterner in, in, in Germany face, they would face in return? Uh, let me
1: let me remove my German cap and put my Arabic pure <laughs> Arabic heart. So there's this organization called Two Hearts. I don't know if you heard of that. So you have Two yeah, Hearts in the office, right? I, I adore yeah. them. Um, now, yeah. let me put my Arabic heart in there, yeah. right? So we're not good enough, but our money is good enough. Yep. Mm. Number one, mm. and everyone thinks mm-hmm. this way. By the way, everyone. Now that's number one. Number two, you as a German VC that ran out of opportunity here to raise significant amounts of money and Mm -hmm. to leverage network, et cetera, are resorting now to the, to the place on this planet that you've been exploiting for the last 60 years. Um, now, now, like, like our chancellor going to Qatar, begging for gas. Now you're going to Saudi and whatever, begging for money for your companies Mm -hmm. that you're unable to fund because. I don't know how many, I think 40 billion every year go in subsidies into an economy that is going downhill, right? Mm -hmm. And you're shying away from the reforms that are required in order to get to the next level. They are not shying away from reforms. And guess what? They want their own money to stay with them. So that's another thing where I would say, so the first complex is stop discriminating us in your mass media and in your politics, number one. Number two, if you want to deal with us, commit to us and commit to us at the same levels. Don't patronize us, telling us, and I'm I'm not saying us as me, but I'm saying us from from the perspective of the entire Middle East. Stop patronizing us, telling us about human rights and God knows what, and God knows what. And at the end of the day, you don't give a damn about human rights when you invade countries in Africa to take the resources to build your chips and calling mm-hmm. it Muslim terrorist fighting or God knows what, pretending uh, things. So I don't want to go into that topic, but this is the overall mindset is, You've been patronizing us for far too long. Your time is over. In Saudi, we say the new Europe is the Middle East. And that's mm. true. The amount of innovation coming from there, the energy level of every part of the population, 50% of the population is below 25 years. And they're eager to shape their place. 50% of the population here is about is above 55. They're not eager to to shape their place. They're eager to retain what they earned and keep it and protect it against solidarity movements. So there's a completely different mindset. Now, if I was a VC and I talked to certain VCs that are awesome people, um, and I made interest to them to the VC ecosystem and the startup ecosystem in the Middle East. And they're like, wow, um, these are amazing people. Thanks for introducing me to like all these people. Um, and I'm considering moving there myself as a partner and opening shop down there. Now, Mm -hmm. I have at the moment, I'm looking at four size business models that I've been developing, sitting in Berlin, um, that I want to roll out in the Middle East, not here, because I think it's much easier to roll out med tech in the Middle East, health tech, biotech in the Middle East, all the regulatory stuff. And they have regulations there, but they have common sense. There's no common sense in the bureaucracy of the European Union anymore. Right. So there's a lot of business models that I'm looking at in fintech, in edtech, in game tech and all this space. One of them I would probably roll out or maybe two. Um, And I'm thinking of taking a good VC along with me and become the first project for them to set up shop there. And I think if Mm -hmm. I was a VC advising a VC, I would say, look, this is what you have to do rather than go there to to raise funds from someone like PIF, go there with a good startup with an experienced founder Mm -hmm. team, for example, go down there, set up something, create some press one year to three years, show commitment by being on the ground yourself, set up a small team of two, three people. And then you participate in the ecosystem, you give value by speaking at events, Mm -hmm. by talking to founders, by coaching, mentoring, and by funding local businesses, Mm -hmm. then you are entitled Mm -hmm. to have these conversations with the likes of PIF, Mubadala, and the funds of funds that are there everywhere. Um, That's my big advice. And And the Americans
2: are doing that, right? You know? Techstars just opened up in Riyadh. A16 yeah. has an office, Sequoia yeah. has an office, yeah. but yeah.
1: I have uh, I'm mentoring with most of those guys um because yeah. frankly I think they do great work, right? And yeah. I think what Techstars for example is is phenomenal. I just I just uh, yeah. took on the last cohort in Riyadh and the people yeah. they identified, they, the young founders there, wow. I was impressed yeah. if I compare them to 2011 when I first came uh, to the startup scene there, it's a different level now. It's a complete so there's a lot of graduates from startups that got exited, etc. like Kareem. Um a lot of people that worked there that went on to teach others on how to uh, how to work on, on on, startups. And I think it's paying off right now. Um and yeah, VCs in the US have understood. If you go to the FII conference in two weeks in Saudi, the the doubles of Saudi mm-hmm. if you if you will, all the way Um if you see the list of people that comes there and speaks, for example, all the big boys. All the big private equity boys from the U.S., some of the largest VCs. I think the only known VC name that I've seen from Germany is Klaus Thomas, but that's because mm-hmm. this guy has been a global guy from day one, and he's an amazing, yep. amazingly globally thinking uh, citizen. Uh, but mm-hmm. everyone else is. yeah, Why should I go to Riyadh now? You, you, are, are women allowed to participate? That's the only question I get. I'm like, dude, just go there one yeah. day.
0: Go there yeah. one day. Take a look. Mohamed, I I exactly want to ask that kind of question on a really personal level. So I I fully see your point that you're saying, look, Western Europe has this kind of still of arrogant attitude where they kind of ignore how geopolitics is evolving over time, that they might be much less powerful than they still think and it's it's very annoying if uh, Europeans go to other places and tell them what people should do and not do whereas their own history is not always <laughs> very very nice at the same time if you go to some places there are some issues in terms of what we see as kind of norms and values about equal treatment of women equal treatment of of gay people and 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 I don't want to go into the broad points but it's more as an as an individual if you go to these countries and I think that's indeed what we should do but how as an individual do you kind of manage that kind of potential tension that that there might be some issues in these countries that from a personal perspective norms and values do not align with your personal ideas. I'll give you I'll give you a couple of examples. First of all,
1: I think as a person you need to have your own moral compass. You need to have your own set of values that are probably given to you by in in your childhood. Right? Uh, Now my moral compass is my parents are Muslims. They gave me Islamic values are pretty similar to Christian, core Christian values. Very similar. You should not harm other people. Mm-hmm. You need to, you know, the, the standard stuff, right? That's number one. Number two, I think whenever you go to a legislation, wherever it is, you need to respect that legislation. So my religion, Islam says, wherever I live, I'm not allowed. And this is part of my religion. I'm not allowed to violate the local law. Live and let live. That's a core principle, right? Now. If I'm in Germany, and let's say I post today that I condemn the killing of people in Gaza, civilians, mm. Yeah. Mm. look at Twitter and look at the shitstorm that I would... Okay, sorry. Look at X and <laughs> look at the shitstorm that I would get. Okay? Yeah. And I'm mentioning because yeah. Garrett has spent time there and you know how great the people are uh, over there. And yeah. I'm, mentoring, I'm mentoring people that I cannot yeah. reach today in Palestine. Mm-hmm. I can't reach them. It devastates me, right? Now, yeah. The shitstorm that I get, in Dubai, call it censorship. If I put one post that says Mohammed, you're an idiot, I get arrested. At mm-hmm. least I get prosecuted. Mm-hmm. It protects mm-hmm. me from being bullied. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, freedom of speech in Germany ends on three, four things. There is no freedom of speech. For certain topics, mm-hmm. is a cancellation topic. COVID was I'm not gonna mm-hmm. take politics now. Or foreign mm-hmm. policy. I'm going to take COVID. If you say I don't believe in these vaccines, and that's not my opinion or or not, I'm not even disclosing it. But if you don't say I support LGBTQ values, if you don't say I support actively, you're canceled. If you don't support COVID mm-hmm. actively, you're canceled, regardless of what attitude you have, what values you have. I have. Like the other day, someone said blah blah blah, and you, Muskanranga. But you know what my answer was. I'm not Muslim. I converted mm. six years ago. Took <laughs> them completely off, blew them away. Obviously, that's not true, but I killed the conversation mm. by just saying, no, I'm not Muslim anymore. Mm. You know? And then I saw the I and say, see, this is racism. What you're doing is racism. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think there is, there is this thing, and it kills me every time I see that, that this arrogance level is so deep in society here. So deep. Just go there before you boycott a, a world cup in Qatar. Go there and spend time with it. Have you ever been there? I had a guy working for me in my startup here in Berlin. No, I'm not following. He's a football fanatic. I'm not following him. It. It's in Qatar. This is like I'm like, dude, don't you think that the U.S. paid millions and billions to get the world cup to the U.S.? Don't you think that this and that? Yeah, but the workers there are being like, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, dude have you ever been in a war pot? and seen like 20 years ago mm-hmm. how they were climbing down and how how they were working super hard and their lungs are broken and god knows what have you like, mm-hmm. this is their thing this is their legislation and the indian guy that comes from india that makes 10 dollars in india but 200 dollars there to feed 30 people in india he chose to be there yes 20 mm-hmm. years ago i witnessed myself at the airport people being beaten by soldiers that came from certain countries today it doesn't happen anymore right mm-hmm. in dubai it never i never seen that in dubai I've never seen anything like that in Dubai. I've seen it in Saudi Arabia 20 years ago. I don't see it today anymore, etc. So there is an evolution also in these societies. Germany didn't give rights for women until like last century sometimes to be regard- regarded as different from animals. God, and now you're trying to patronize us, telling us uh, in the Middle East. And this is a mentality that has to change. We're not ruling the world anymore
0: like colonialism. China is ruling the world. China. But so, what you're saying is I have my own moral compass, and that's what guides me in kind of navigating everyone else.
1: I respect that the UAE doesn't want me to talk about politics, so I don't talk about politics Mm -hmm. in a certain way that is damaging to their philosophy. I might disapprove of certain decisions, and I can talk about it in my private environment, but I don't post it actively if they don't want me to post it actively. Call it lack of freedom of speech. I call it respect to a nation's strategy, a nation's policy, etc. Now, if mm-hmm. I neglect and, and if I, I if I deny the Holocaust here, yeah, I get arrested because it's law. So I have to respect it. Right? Some people don't mm-hmm. respect it, they get arrested. And I think that's good. Right? I mm-hmm. think that's good. If I say I don't support COVID vaccines, I should not be fired from my job. That is violation of, of so what I'm saying is if you live in your own glass house, fix it before you throw stones at others, right? And I think that's literally what's happening in Europe. We have so much shit going on here. I hope my kids don't watch this. Um, <laughs> we have so much going on here from economic like distress to political, to moral distress, to media that is so one-sided and so radicalized now, and so polarizing, and I'm not even talking about the US, I'm talking only about Europe. God, fix your own crap before you look at others and point fingers. Seriously. And that's one of the reasons why I returned here because I wanted to contribute to fixing it. But frankly, Mm -hmm. after one year being back here, I'm like, this is a mission impossible. Not with the current political leadership. It's impossible. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and talk about a hot topic over the past few days too. So everything you talked about is so central to everything I've been thinking about these past few days. It's, uh, I can see the emotion and I feel it as well. <laughs> let's, let's No,
0: and I think it, it's, it's good that we talk about it. And look, mm-hmm. our audience does not always have to agree or whatever, but I think we should also not be hypocritic and now ignore what is going on and <laughs> just have a talk with somebody <laughs> who has a lot of experience in the Middle East and pretend that this is not... Yeah, having a very broader kind of impact nowadays. So Mohamed I also appreciate your, your your transparency about your ideas. Yeah. And again, it's up to the audience to decide whether they agree with you or not. But at least I think we have we need to have today an open and intellectual conversation about these topics, um, because otherwise, if we only look at the indeed the Twitter feeds nowadays or the the X feeds, it, it's getting very scary. I would say so. I think we need to have these conversations. To put some perspective on it, I've been sides. unfollowed
1: and unliked by about seventy people in the last mm-hmm. two days alone. Amongst them people mm-hmm. from my business school that has written to me messages um from you're the biggest uh God knows what, Those are calling me names, et cetera, mm-hmm. and I don't want to deal with you because you're the biggest blah blah on the planet. Why? Mm-hmm. Because I supported a post by someone who's a Holocaust survivor who said this is racism, this is genocide, this is blah blah and I just pressed like. Because honestly, that's how I feel. I think no human should kill another human. Period. Yeah. Period. Like there is no discussion, and you can apply it to different regions, not only there. Like Ukraine war, I think feeding weapons, etc. You can have these discussions endlessly. But problem is we're not allowed to have these discussions anymore. So I'm very yeah. grateful that we at least can touch up on these topics, and uh, so that people start maybe reflecting and what they can
0: contribute to to avoid these things in the future. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I think we also have to say, I've seen also from the other side, not people that I think uh, expressed kind of their support for Israel and that were also kind of, and then did it in a reasonable way and then immediately get also, get also, so I'm saying, I think, that's what I'm talking
1: about. That's exactly what I'm
0: talking about. You see it from both sides at the moment that, that you see there is such a polarization, which I think is very scary. And therefore we need to have this kind of conversations. Um, to try to at least get some reasonable perspective.
2: Um, I, so, I mean, this bringing it back to the initial question about, you know, Europeans wanting to work in the Middle East, I think the, <laughs> the message, Mohammed, that you provided is, is a profound one, right? Like the importance of not bringing this cultural colonist mentality and bringing your own values into a new environment. If you want to succeed in a culture that is not your own, you have to adapt and you have to respect the ways of that culture yeah. so you need i think in the end to commit yep. to the culture immerse yourself right. in the culture right that's right that's right unfortunately you know i come from a development economics background so i spent a decade in other cultures like that and my education was all about you know how you kind of humble yourself and you try to build meaningful relationships of love and trust before you think about doing business. And I think we in the entrepreneurial world come with, sorry for the, sorry if your kids are listening, but this big dick energy that we come swinging around and big, big egos that we have all of the answers. We're the innovators, right? And that is very much like the way development happened. 50 70 years ago with technology transfer like we are the smart ones we're going to show the primitive natives how to do things and i think Mm -hmm. some of those kind of values exist in our world and we need to think about how we decolonize the entrepreneurial mindset a bit so i think this is a really good good topic i want to ask one other question i know we're going already a bit over time but um There's, you know, we've been kind of tracking each other on LinkedIn for a while, and it's from the time we've gotten to meet, but you have something on there that I would like you to explain a little bit, because you have this brand of being kind of the first thousand days guy. Um... I connect with that a little bit, um, but I, I want to make sure I understand it first. So maybe you can describe, describe that for us. Okay.
1: Just in the interest of my own family, it doesn't refer to family relationships.
2: Okay? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, um,
1: uh, to be honest, um, if you look at my profile, I stayed on average, probably three years on in, in different stations. Why is that? Like I take the biggest startup that I've built It's an online travel business. I scaled it from zero to about a hundred, uh, sorry, to about close to a billion in gross, gross sales in three and a half years and to about a thousand, two hundred people. Um, then it, it was a corporate venture because I didn't want to deal with VCs. Um, and then there came a point where I had discussions around, Hey, we need to roll out SAP to have like consolidated books. And honestly, it makes sense from a corporate perspective, but do I enjoy doing that and do this corporate integration? No it's time for me to move on. There's much better people than me that take a company from a super scale-up level to a, you know, let's optimize certain things uh, stage. And I think this is typical startup life cycle and typical founder life cycle. Very, uh, there's many founders that don't understand where their core strength is. And it took me a while to understand it as well. But I think my core strength is to selling is, is about selling a vision, exciting people to join me on a mission. And stay with me for a certain while and do things they never imagined they could do on their own. Um, I think that's my strength. Um, and mm-hmm. this first thousand days guy was someone told me this, and I'm like, hey, I could create a SaaS company out of that with all the stuff that I've learned. For example, the conversations we just had about the data roof, Right? Mm-hmm. I refuse giving any VC more than an Excel sheet that says, "Here's my cash burn in 12 months, month by month." At this, mm-hmm. at this level, it's a one pager. If you need a financial model over five years, ask your grandma. I'm not going to do it. All right. So give a SaaS tool that calculates this very simple thing based on the industry you want to enter to and from the first thousand data. Give a business plan writing tool. So all these individual tools that you have that are super sophisticated out there, combine them in a most simplified way where you focus on scaling, scaling, scaling the first thousand data. And I'm testing basically how people, how this brand resonates. Um, and it's a product mm-hmm. brand. It's not a personality brand. I don't believe in personal branding. I think it's gotcha. personality, and that's you. Mm-hmm. Um, but this mm-hmm. thousand days guy dot app or whatever I'm going to create out of it might be something that mm-hmm. you will see in the future. Right.
2: Well, well, coming from the maybe I would call myself the five hundred days guy, but um, <laughs> I, I, I it, it, certainly, it certainly resonates <laughs> with me. But, you know, we had Steve Blank on a couple of years ago, and you know, he talks about, these kind of stages of a company between exploration and exploitation. And some people are really good at exploitation and optimizing and capturing market share. Others are really good at innovating and finding product market fit. And I think very rarely do founders kind of bridge both of those things. However, going back to the ego topic, we see so many founders that think they can do it all. I've learned over doing this for 20 years that I have an expiry date. When there's someone, there's a time that there's someone better than me to to kind of step in. Do you, you know, you kind of talked about both sides. I'm curious, do you see it as a, a personal preference of what you like? Or do you see it as this is really where I'm most effective and I'm not as effective in the later stage? I think it's much more profound than what hmm. I see
1: in myself. I think let's take, take, take this online travel business. So basically, I met a CEO of an offline travel business. And I told him, I need $150 million to build a billion-dollar business. And he said, yes, go ahead. That was literally the VC conversation. And I have a responsibility that is so heavy on my shoulders to make sure that whatever I build outlives me. So on day Mm -hmm. one, literally, I assemble a team that I know will run the company if I die tomorrow. Probably some energy will be lost because I am this hyper, hyper guy. But the guys that I put in place today scaled the company to a level where they just raised $500 from PIF, for example. Um, So you need to make sure that whatever you do, you build it to last. And you build it to last beyond yourself, right? Yes, I have a personal preference, which is exciting people, but I've proven also in my McKinsey tenure that I can do stuff like long-term optimization and stay in a more mature place and optimize it. But I think the bigger impact that I have that I can give back to society isn't the first thousand days, right? And I think that's that's what makes me quantumly be- better than 99% probably of people that do the same.
0: Okay. As Garrett was already indicating, we are already running a bit out of time. So I think we uh, should slowly move to kind of finalizing the episode. And what we always do at the end, Mohammed, is to ask our um, guests to give some recommendations in terms of books that they have recently read or podcasts to which they have listened. So do you have any suggestions for our audience? Um, yeah, I'm excited by this geezy Gutenberg
1: podcast. Um, I had the privilege of meeting okay. with Kati um, in, in Dubai one day and um, is very insightful. Why? Because I think these are completely two different, completely characters, and they're some of the most, like, uh, the, the the rhetorical brilliance both have is unbelievable. It's unfortunately only in German, but, um, and the insights they have because they have so much wisdom is, is amazing. Also, and this basically the link back to the entrepreneurial, if you take uh, Gutenberg, for example, we all know his story. The guy learned so much in his life and um, grew, I think. So the guy was basically super scaled to the top, top, then dropped and killed by media overnight. Um, and then rebuilt himself to become credible again. Um, never lost his moral compass, but understood that he had a certain level of arrogance um, that affected his life, his family life, etc. pp. And I think just the insights by following this conversation is is just uh outstanding um
0: okay
1: um, that that is super 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 important um then in terms of books i don't want to give a concrete recommendation but what i urge people to do is dig out books about middle eastern history dig out books about the biggest There is one i don't know the exact name but it's it. i read it a while back it's a book about Important scientists coming from the Middle East, or Islamic scientists, I think it's called, that have defined what we know today in modern medicine, like Ibn Sina, for example. The travelers, people here talk about Marco Polo. There's far more important travelers in the world, like Ibn Battuta, for example. There is people that have defined algebra. There's people, there's so many scientists that have defined what you take for granted today all around the world, and they came from this region. So this region is culturally rich. Um, the U S unfortunately destroyed Iraq, but Iraq was the culturally richest place on this, on that for centuries, right? If you just see the history of people that came from there, that that really impacted the whole scientific world that you're in. Um, I think that's super,
0: super amazing. I just urge you really to, to take a quick look at that. Great. Uh, Okay. No, I think that's, especially nowadays, I think a very relevant suggestion because I, again I think it's very important for all of us that we we try to understand kind of the situation from different perspectives you know um, because um, I fear we will have some tensions in the coming months in the coming years that will require from all of us to to have a very nuanced perspective on what is happening and then looking from different sides will be very important Um, and I think, as you indicated, of course, we also, as as a kind of Western society, we have a bias, and we need to be aware from that, and we should actively invest in trying to kind of mitigate these biases as much as possible. Yeah. Go there, and I actually hope that this this conversation today can also help that. And again, uh, it, it's your perspective, and and I really appreciate your your openness and honesty about it, and and hopefully, this kind of perspectives can at least contribute to the discussion. Yeah,
2: yeah I, I will echo that, Mohammed. Like. I think this conversation came in a timely manner. I love the direction that it went and it strayed a bit away from business and it went into to life and, and the world. And because I think in the end, entrepreneurs, we can myopically focus on business models a bit too much. And in, in the end, what makes the greatest founders are the way they relate and connect with other people. You know, the greatest skill that an entrepreneur can have are those those people skills. And I think what we talked about today is how we can bridge divides and ways of knowing. And uh, I think it was really relevant and right up my alley. So Shukran, it was a <laughs> great pleasure. conversation.
1: Yeah.
2: One, anytime. Great,
1: guys. Um, thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. And uh, I also believe that business is about love nothing else. If you build lovable relationships or lovely relationships with people long-term, you'll be successful and impact those people. And that's, that's actually what drives me at least. Um, it's not a transactional thing. It's a long-term relationship thing based and you can't keep emotions out. You just can't.
0: Inshallah. Okay. I think that's a very nice way to end this uh, conversation. So Mohammed, thanks again. And also to our listeners, Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode, that you learned something from it, and that it also can help you to put a bit in perspective what is happening today in the world also from a broader level. So thanks for listening and hope to have you again for the next episodes. Bye. Ciao.